0: Hi right, guys, today I've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Joby Martin. So he is the founder and lead pastor of the Church of 1122 in Jacksonville, Florida. He's also a speaker and an author and the host of the Deepen with Pastor Joby Martin podcast. And he's also the author of a brand new book that I've got right here in front of me called If the Tomb is Empty, Why the Resurrection Means Anything is Possible. So guys, I, I get pitched a lot of books uh, and I get pitched a lot of people to come on the show. And so I don't always get pitched pastors. And so that was kind of interesting and So I never really heard of this guy's ministry. And so it's like, yeah, sure, send the book over and I'll start reading it. Not only is it one of the better books that I've read this year, okay, it was very encouraging and we get get a lot into the book really in the first half of this podcast, but this is not only one of the best interviews I felt like we've done this year and we've had bangers this year. I mean, my gosh, some of the ones we've even got coming up are ridiculous. This is one of my favorite interviews ever. Um, and for a lot of reasons, uh, not only his answers on certain things you know, the access to his brain that he gave us when he answered, you know, certain things in certain ways the the different subject matters, but we talked about so many important things and he kept bringing things back to the Bible. And it was encouraging to me as a guy that's trying to lead other men through this ministry and through this podcast to see faithful men like that, that you can follow him as he follows Christ. And, you know, I kind of similarly want to do that with you guys. But in this interview, we really get a lot into the book. We get into, you know, kind of why he set it up the way that he did, why we focus on the resurrection so much. Um, I think he kind of took a shot at Andy Stanley in his book. And so some of you guys know exactly what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about the whole unhitch thing that came up and all that drama from a few years ago we're going to be talking about how people think their lives should be easier when they're christians you know we're going to talk about really the scariest part of the bible you know, those that say, Lord, Lord, may not enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, we're going to get into all that. We're going to get into how, you know, modern culture is fighting against truth. But then we're going to get into some other things that are outside the book. You know, why pastors don't, you know, go after hard subjects like abortion and transgenderism. Why do they they avoid those topics from the pulpit? Talking about manhood in the church. He gave the best answer I've ever heard in my life of doing this about man-friendly churches and how we should try and disciple men. We're going to talk about the fall of prominent pastors like Brian Houston and Ravi Zacharias and Bill Hybels, and Carl Lentz, and all those guys. We're going to talk about worship music and all the issues with that. We're going to talk about multi-site and online church and how a lot of these pastors have a CEO and a board of directors. They're CEOs and board of directors, and they're not actual pastors. Guys, we talked about everything, right? We only had about an hour together, but we just absolutely blew through all these different subject matters. It really sets us up down the road to talk about any, you know, a whole bunch more things. So, guys, I really, really enjoyed my time with Pastor Joby Martin. I hope you do as well. But without further ado, let's get into it. Joe B. Martin, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast.
1: Man, it's my pleasure to be here.
0: So you have a kind of interesting story about how you found yourself in vocational ministry, which I feel like everyone that's in vocational ministry, like being a professional Christian, has an interesting story of how they got there. But also how you started your church down there in Jacksonville, Florida, the Church of 1122 is interesting as well. So give us the Spark Notes version as a way of introduction for how you got into vocational ministry and how that ended up in 2012 with you launching the Church of 1122
1: yeah man um well I, I grew up in the south but I did not grow up at church just maybe like Christmas and and Thanksgiving, I mean Christmas and Easter maybe and found myself in a little trouble and my football coach uh, worked out a deal with the powers that be that I would cut grass at this little denominational Baptist retreat center and so one night there the counselors reenacted reenacted the crucifixion of Christ and even though I would have said I was a Christian, I had never surrendered my life to Christ. And that's the night that I believe when Christ died on the cross, it counted for me. Several years later, I find myself on staff there cutting grass and stuff like that. And uh, one night during the worship experience when our guy was up there singing, I am a C, you remember that one? Yeah, of course. (laughs) And uh, Coach Lee, my football coach that ran the place leans over to me and said, boy, when the singing's done, you're going to preach. And I was like, coach, uh, I'm not very comfortable speaking in front of people. And he said, boy, did you say comfortable? You think Paul and Silas were comfortable in the lion's den, boy, or in prison? Boy, do you think Daniel was comfortable in the lion's <laughs> den? Boy, do you think Jesus Christ was comfortable on the cross? And I was like, no, I don't think he was. And I said, coach, what do I talk about? He said, boy, that's easy. You talk about Jesus and you talk about 30 minutes. And so I did. And that's pretty much what I've been doing ever since. And so, I did student ministry for about 15 years and then found myself here in Jacksonville, Florida. Just living life, man, having a great time pastoring students, minding my own business. And then we started a service at the church that I was on staff at. And it started at 1122 a.m. on Sunday mornings. That's why we named it that. I'm not very creative, but at least people would know when to come. And then you fast forward about a year later and that service had grown to maybe five or six services and outgrown the church. And so my pastor said, why don't you plant a church? And so in September of 2012, we planted the Church of 1122 right here in Jacksonville.
0: That's amazing. And I know y'all have seen a lot of explosive growth and you really do get into that. And we're going to spend most of our time today talking about your new book. It's right here in front of me. If you're not watching on YouTube, what's wrong with you? But it's if the tomb is empty, why the resurrection means anything is possible. So this is a book that you co-wrote with Charles Martin. So if you would, I always like to hear from the author and and hear them describe their own book in their own words. So, you know, take us through what you want readers to get out of this book, but also this is a co-written book. So take us through that process. Was that cool? Were you and Charles still friends after? And even how you set but the chapters was interesting. You had kind of a, a different mountain for each chapter you got into. So take that wherever you want to go.
1: Yeah, man. Uh, like you said, we planted the church. It grew real fast. All the people that are in that kind of evangelical world started hounding me to write a book. And I told everybody, as soon as I have an original thought, I'll jot it down, I promise. <laughs> but really what it came down to is you only get your first one once. And so I I, I didn't want to do it too early. I met Charles. Charles is a New York Times bestselling author. He's written 20 something books, most of them are novels. He's a deacon at my church. And um, all of the content is from me. And then he just helped me get it from stage to page because I am primarily a preacher. And so we took some content that I'd already been working on, and and that was the guts of the book. And uh, really, years ago, I think it was maybe eight years ago, he and I were in Israel together. And every time the bus pulled up to some new spot, it seemed like so many of them were mountains. Hmm. And it just led me on this study in the scriptures to just see the kind of things God did on these mountains that he created. And it seems to me that, well, one, our life is just a series of mountaintops and valleys. And you're either heading into one or heading out of one. And that God often demonstrates his glory up on the mountain and his mercy and grace down in the valley. And so I <clears throat> I just track the really the gospel through seven different mountains in the scripture, starting with Mount Moriah and then heading all the way to Mount Calvary, which is the same mountain, which very few church folks even understand. Hmm. And it all points to the reality that on Calvary, Calvary held a tomb, but the tomb couldn't hold a body. And so it all just points to the resurrection of Jesus Christ.
0: Uh, I got to say, it was very interesting how it was set up because I didn't know that either, that those two mountains were the same mountain. And so it's like, That for me, I was like, wait a minute, like that's such a big idea to talk through. Why isn't this just as well known as, you know, the two of every animal on a big old boat back in the day? Like that should be really, really well known. But I want to get into a lot of quotes from this book and kind of tee you up to talk a little bit more about it. But right from the prologue, you're already spitting fire. So I want to read this quote to you. The answer tells a lot about you and what you believe. So let me press you this is a gut check. Do you live every day of your life as if the tomb is empty or as though Jesus is still hanging on that cross? think before you answer. Now, you did invite us throughout the writing of this book to pause a little bit, and maybe that was kind of some of the poetic license that Charles took with some of the content as well. But why is that question specifically so important? Because I know there are a lot of people, maybe more so like in the Catholic faith, they, they think more about the crucifixion. You see that a lot more in kind of their artistic expression of Christ and Calvary and all those different things. But why is that specific gut check question so important from the very beginning?
1: Kyle, I think most church folks believe in half the gospel. If, if your average person is going to be at Easter this weekend, if I were to say, all right, if you were dead standing before Jesus, and he says, why should I let you in my heaven? Most people would say, because I believe you died on the cross to forgive me of my sins, which is true, but that's not the end of the story. The end is that he went through death and was resurrected from the grave. And if you stop at the cross and you only believe that Jesus wiped your slate clean, then implicitly that means then you better get to work to fill your slate in right this time. You see, we don't need a second chance. If you had a second chance at life, you would just screw up again. What we need is a brand new life. It would be like if we went, if if we were in debt over our heads and we went to a banker and said, hey man, there's no way in my lifetime I can pay this back. I don't know what to do. And he said, well, don't worry about it. I'm gracious. I'm going to forgive you of your debt. Well, it would be gracious and you would be grateful But when you left the bank, your condition is you would be broke and you would have to get to work. That is not the gospel. No. The gospel is, in the bank analogy, that the banker said, not only am I going to forgive you of my debt, but I'm going to adopt you as my very own and give you access to everything that I have. And so the full gospel is not Jesus not only died for our sins, but when he resurrected from the grave, that we are imputed with his righteousness, the Bible says, this is love, not that we love God, but God loved us and sent his son as the propitiation for our sin. That word propitiation means a payment that satisfies the law of God, the justice of God, the wrath of God, which means this, bro. If you were in Christ, if Christ is the payment that satisfies, God cannot be dissatisfied in you. And a lot of us live as if God is still pretty frustrated with us because we don't believe the full gospel. And if the tomb is empty, then we, like Christ, who is the, prototoco or the prototype, the firstborn from among the dead, that we should be walking in that same kind of power in life that he did.
0: I think that's going to really dovetail nicely with some stuff we're going to get into later, but I do want to go ahead and kind of go chapter by chapter with some big stuff from each. So in chapter one, we're talking about Mount Moriah here. So there's a couple of quotes I want to read because I think this is a reflection of the sickness that we have within Christendom right now. So the first quote is this, but this isn't how this goes. I just got saved. Life's supposed to be better. I mean, I met Jesus. Isn't everything going to be better now? And then a little bit later in chapter one, you say this, in our culture today, there is a version of church that claims to be Christianity when it's not. Flip through the channels and you can find somebody selling a gospel that says, if you love God, then he owes you health, wealth, and happiness. It's called the prosperity gospel. And the problem with it historically is what we call the Bible. And then a little bit later, you say his focus is on his glory. I got to say, I did chuckle out loud. So, you know, sitting in my office by myself, whenever you said (laughs) the problem with that is the Bible, but this is a big thing. A big problem that I have, Joby, is a lot of people think God is about them. Like God's about me. No, no, he's for you, but he's not about you. God is about himself. God is about his own glory. But also it's this internal dialogue that we have with ourselves and this internal looking like if God loves me, everything should just be squared away. And it's like, are you reading the new Testament? Like, if you get what you deserve, you're crucified upside down. Like, think about the guys that were closest to Jesus. They didn't leave the lead these nice, cushy lives until they finally died quietly in their sleep. Why is that such a problem for modern Christians?
1: Uh, because we worship at the altar of our own comfort, and we ask God to come and join us in our own glory instead of surrendering to Him and understand. Hey, look, what you said is absolutely right. God is for you. Anybody that dies for you is for you. He right. demonstrated his love for us in this while we were yet still sinners. Christ died for us. It just ain't all about you, man. It's all <laughs> about him. And as plain as the text can say it in Genesis, after Abraham has received his promised son, and Isaac is probably 16, 17, 18 years old, something like that, Abraham's probably thinking, well, man, I've been through the tough stuff. And the Bible just says, and God tested Abraham. God would love us enough to discomfort and discombobulate our entire life, to strip everything away from us that is idolatrous to us so that we would know that he is the one and the only one that can satisfy
0: I think that's a great through point of your entire book. And there's a lot of gut checks in your book. It sounds like that's who you are as a person, which I appreciate because I'm like the gut check guy. I'm always calling people to the carpet. So let's go and get into chapter two, where we're talking about Mount Sinai. So let me read this quote here. You and I cannot rightfully, sorry, rightly and fully know Jesus. If we don't rightly and fully know the backdrop of the old Testament out of which Jesus steps, hence the law. So, you know, earlier on in the book, you talk about Paul in his first letter to the church in Corinth, and you, you quoted 1 Corinthians 15, 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Now, this all kind of goes back and the first thing I thought of, and I wrote it in the margins was the unhitch controversy that surrounded Andy Stanley. So back in 2018, you know, he's doing the series called aftermath and in part three called not difficult, he talked about how we should unhitch the new Testament from the old Testament. What he was meaning is, is the resurrection is the center point for a Christian's faith, not the old Testament. We can get to right. Noah. We can get to all these other things. It made sense, but he was destroyed for that. in in a lot of ways, rightfully so, but then later on in chapter two, You say this little quote, and it just kind of stuck out to me. It said, may we never unhitch unhitch from the Old Testament. So, Joby, is that shots fired? Were you taking a little shot at Andy Stanley there? Because either it's just the biggest coincidence in the world that you used the word unhitch, or you have something to say about it. So, give it to me.
1: First of all, I would say uh, I've met Andy several times. It's not like we're good buddies or anything. I have mad respect for the guy. His church has been unbelievably gracious to our church because we got big real fast and had to figure out how to do all the things. Mm-hmm. And North Point has been awesome to us. Okay. And um, if I were really, if we were buddies and I could call him on the phone, I'd say, Hey, man, you want to re explain that unhitched thing? Because I don't think you mean what you think you mean or you that.
0: Yeah, it didn't come off the way you meant it to.
1: No, man. I mean, for sure, the centerpiece of our faith is not the temple. It is the empty tomb. I mean, it's what the whole book is. We don't have faith in faith. And we don't have faith in our religious practices somehow make us clean. That's not how it works, all right? It's the resurrected Christ and his imputed righteousness righteousness to us that make us clean. However, you cannot know the character and nature of God if you put away the covenant with the Hebrew people, because so much of the character and nature of God is revealed in that, specifically the commandments. I mean, the goal is not be good; the goal is be holy, for I am holy. Hmm. All right, Lord, what does that look like? And he goes, well, here's here's ten to start with, and then ultimately, what we do when we when we hold up the the map and the mirror of the Ten Commandments is we realize we got a big problem, bro, because we are not holy. This is not just God that is kind of desires a relationship with you out of nowhere. This is a holy and perfect God, and we need someone to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And I don't think you could rightly understand like Romans chapter 3, for by works of the law no one will be justified in his own works if you don't understand the entire Old Testament and what you're being justified from. So may we not unhitch. I don't know if it's a shot, but it's... I I would would like to be clear that we shall not unhitch that the new Testament is the fulfillment of everything pointed to in the old, that Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise, every prophecy and every precept of the old covenant.
0: Yeah. And he actually did a debate show against uh, Jeff Durbin a a couple of months after that. And Jeff Durbin kind of kind of destroyed him. It, it was an embarrassing performance for Andy because for me, like this is how I would have explained it. And then I'll see if this makes sense to you. I've talked to people that are somewhere between atheist and agnostic, and I use the resurrection as the starting point, not the beginning Correct. and the end, but the starting point to say like, look, I know Jonah and the whale doesn't make sense. I know the, the you know, six days or seven literal days of, of creation and, you know, six and then resting on the seventh day. I know that doesn't really make sense in our modern parlance. Let's start with if this guy was raised from the dead, because if he was, we need to explore the rest of it. If he wasn't, don't worry about it. Go figure something out. Make up your own religion. I feel like that would have been a better place to start. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. And I, and the way I've heard Andy describe it before sounded more like what you just said. Right. But in that one particular series, yeah, he just kind of hunkered down on the old itch thing. And, yes. and I agree that that we don't. It's not temple worship anymore. That the Spirit of God lives in us. That the church is more of a movement than a building. I mean, I am with all that. But, but I, I, from cover to cover, it is God's inspired, infallible word, and every single bit of it is vitally important to the life of the believer.
0: Yeah, it's if anything, it's a lesson to be incredibly, incredibly precise in the language that we use. And if we aren't as precise, to make sure that we clean that up uh, pretty soon thereafter. But let's move into chapter three, where you're talking about Mount Carmel. Let me read this quote here. Today, we live in a world that says, if you believe in something intently and intensely, that's all that matters. It's not true. No matter how hard you believe in something, that does not make it true. There is no your truth. The quickest way to neuter the word truth of its meaning is to add Oh, to add in front of it, the, or to add my in front of it, sorry, I messed up your quote there, to add my in front of the word truth. There's just truth. So I got some breaking news for you, pastor. Mm-hmm. There is no such thing as truth anymore. I don't know if you knew <laughs> this, but it, there is only your truth and my truth. It's not lived experience. It's actual truth. We can't know anything because we all look at things from different lenses. Haven't you gotten the news? Don't you read the paper?
1: Yeah, but it's not true because even, even I mean, I know you're being facetious, but but um, the, the majority culture that has said there is no truth, they sure do feel like what's happening in Ukraine is bad or the fact that Will Smith smacked Chris Rock. You're not supposed to do that. So when it is convenient for them, there is truth. And then when it is not, then they cast it aside. Listen, man, I, there for sure is your experience and there for sure is your opinion and there for sure is the way Something that happened to you impacted you and it may impact you different than it impacts me. No problem on all of that. That's just not what truth is.
0: I think the thing that's important for all of us to understand and to note as well is the, the big difference between opinion and truth. And the thing about it is, is people will talk about their opinions as if they're true because they're so fervent about it in the, the debate. It's like, okay, you think LeBron James is the best basketball player. I think Michael Jordan is neither one of us is right in the sense of the word, right? Because it's just in the eye of the beholder, but what's,
1: Except Michael Jordan is the best. I mean, obviously <laughs> true. Obviously like
0: we're on the same page there, but at the same time, what's not up for debate is that both of those men have played in the National Basketball Association in the United States of America. That's either true or it's not. Now we need to move on to chapter four. This is my favorite chapter of the entire book. You're talking about the Mount of Beatitudes. There are a couple of sections that I think are incredibly important. And by all means, we might end up spending the rest of our time just about this, but you talk about meekness. Okay, and I'll read this quote here and try not to mess up any more of your quotes. Our problem is that we don't understand what the word means. It rhymes with weak and it's usually used in the phrase meek and mild, so we don't understand it. But the word meek in the Greek means a bit bridled horse. It doesn't mean weak at all. It means guided strength. A big, powerful horse is not weak. He's just handed over the reins to his master. The horse yielded his will to the will of one who can direct his energies for his purposes. Now, I just got to say, I don't find too many people that do this. But I think you said it better than Jordan Peterson said it. Okay. So, Jordan Peterson, again, he's not a pastor, but he talks about meekness a lot. He is the man, but the way he's described it is just like that. But I think you described it beautifully right there. So, talk a little bit about meekness. Because one of the things here is we talk about the lion of Judah constantly. That's why I got a lion over my shoulder, it's because we present Jesus as this meek, mild, dirty, blonde haired Danish guy with very soft white features instead of this like rough Middle Eastern Jew that performed violence on people to clear the temple. And we we don't get this idea of him as being meek in the sense of the way you've described it. We get meek in terms of like, oh, Jesus would never say anything bad. And it's just like, are you reading the scripture? Are you getting the personality of Jesus? So talk to me a little bit about the meekness of Christ and just meekness in general.
1: Well, first and foremost, I think that the Beatitudes are some of the most misunderstood scriptures maybe in all the Bible, because it's often presented as eight circumstantial blessings. But tell me how that's the case, because Would all the pure in heart people please raise their hand? Who is that? I think what it is, it's the preamble to what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, which is the gospel infected life. But if you read the Sermon on the Mount and think, well, of course I can pull this off. Well, you are by definition self-righteous. I think what Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes is giving us an invitation to surrender our life to his lordship. He is presenting the gospel. Blessed are you when you are poor in spirit, you realize you're a sinner. Blessed are you when more when you mourn, when God begins to awaken your heart so that you are mourning the sin in your life, which leads to, I think the meek blessing is the moment of salvation. Blessed are you when you hand over the range of your life to him. And then the rest of the Beatitudes are what the gospel-infected life looks like, which leads to all of the Sermon on the Mount. That, that the reason that we try to live that way is not to achieve God's favor, but because through Christ, we already have his favor and we fight from victory, not for victory. And so Jesus is the ultimate example of what bridled strength is. I mean, think about his conversation with Pilate. He's like, right. oh, you are king. He goes, that's what you say. And then Jesus is like, bro, I can stop this right now. You're you're not taking anything from me. Angel armies could be here before you breathe your next breath, bro. And you are just a greasy spot here on this throne. You understand? I mean, anybody that thinks Jesus is is kind of the Jesus portrayed in the children's book, they have not read the New Testament. He says things like, hey, man, you got a lust problem? How about gouge your eye out and cut your hand off? That's pretty intense. He looks at religious people. And says, man, you are nothing but a shell of of a human. You are a whitewashed tomb. You are a, you're a crooked as a snake. I mean, bro, that's the equivalent of just like, you know, cussing somebody out. He's like us words, but you know what I mean?
0: No, I, in our modern parlance, in our modern way of thinking of things, just think about what you would have to say in 2020 or 2022, I forget what year it is. What would you have to say now to make someone want to kill you? Because Jesus did that all the time. He said right. things that made people so mad they wanted to kill him. And I think a, they're, an important book that kind of helped open this up for me is Beautiful Outlaw by John Eldridge because the entire book is about the personality of Jesus because I was just as guilty as anybody else of reading through the New Testament as if Jesus was this robot that said these really cool things back in the day where it was just like, no, I'm sure he was sarcastic.
1: He was biting. Broke. He was playful. Dude, he told the religious leaders in John chapter 8 that they're, they, said, they said, we've never been captive. We are the sons of Abraham. And he says... Your father is the devil. I mean, bro. Yeah. That I mean, these are the these are the religious leaders with a you know, they're in charge. They memorized the Bible. They ran Sunday school. And he goes, your daddy is the devil. That's the kind of things Jesus said.
0: Yeah, and so that is not uh, to anyone listening to this, because I know we got a lot of rough dudes that listen to this. That is not your uh, license to be a dick to everybody. That's not your no. license to, to be rude to anyone. But it's like righteous anger and righteous aggression. That's something that I think we should practice, which goes back to meekness. But there's another quote in another section of this book, which it it's haunted me. Almost. And it's, and it'll make sense here in a second. So let me read the quote to you. Look how Jesus ends the sermon. And if you take your Bible seriously, these verses will freak you out. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. When Jesus speaks this, there are a lot of people on the mountain and he's issuing a warning. Listen, man, wake up. There's going to be a bunch of surprised church people who don't get into heaven. Then he says to them, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? So, pastor, that is the scariest part of the entire Bible. There are scary verses. There are scary things about God's power that's described in the scriptures. That is the scariest part of the entire Bible for somebody that goes to church, and for good reason. But in light of that, What about things like acts two 21 and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It it really goes into the question of how can we become saved? How do we know for sure that we are saved? Because if you talk to Calvinists, which I've got a lot of buddies that are Calvinists, it's like, if you're not elect, good luck to you. And it's, it's kind of, that's kind of how they describe it to where it's just like, wait a minute, help me bridge this gap. How can we be saved? So leave me there. Tell me.
1: Surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. You'll be saved. See, the difference between Acts 2 and what Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it's just in one word. He says, because in Acts 2, it says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Same thing, Romans ten thirteen. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be mm-hmm. saved. But Jesus says in this warning, whoever says, Lord, Lord, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a difference between just like saying a thing with your mouth but when you say it in his name, that means that you are surrendering to the character and nature of who he is. What it comes down to with the name talk is this. Do you know him? That's it. That's how, that's how it ends in Matthew chapter 25. Depart from me for I never knew you. And the way that we know that the people at the end of the Sermon on the Mount did not trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross is because what they said when he says you're not coming to heaven is they immediately showed them their religious resume They did not say, no, 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 but I put my faith and trust in you. This is how we know that the Beatitudes is an invitation into the gospel because that sermon ends, begins, and ends with the same thing. It ends with the gospel and begins and ends with the gospel. And the gospel is not God is good, you're bad, try harder, good luck getting into heaven. The gospel is that God made him who was without sin to be sin for us, that we would be made the righteousness of God. So how do you get saved? First and foremost, you admit it. I'm a sinner that needs a savior. The second is you believe, trust, pastuo is the Greek word, that when Jesus died on the cross, somehow that counted for me. And then the Bible says, confess him as Lord. And Lord means, like like the word meek. I'm turning over the reins of my life to you. You're the boss of me. I'm not the boss of me anymore. So yeah, there are going to be some surprise people.
0: Well, talk to me a little bit more like that, like putting faith in it, putting trust in, because this is where it gets granular. And this, again, this is where I think Calvinist folks have a hard time explaining this to people in any way, because it's like, yeah, great. You you understand all the theology. That's wonderful. But what, what does that mean for me? What do I do? Because a, a normal Christian, well, I put it in kind of in the frame of a Muslim. A Muslim, when they die, unless they die via jihad, they have no idea if they're going to heaven or not, because their good deeds need to outweigh their bad deeds. So- How about how about this? A Christian could walk around being very, very confused about have I trusted in Christ more than I have not? Because I've leaned on my own understanding a lot. And I've made a lot of decisions on my own that I feel like are within the will of God. But I didn't just say, hey, God, do it. I forgot to pray before I made that decision. You see how this kind of works itself out in, in real life. Again, kind of break it down for those understanding where that that's just too theological, just doesn't make enough sense for them.
1: So the word that you're talking about in the Bible would be the word justified. And justified is a legal term. And justified is a thing that happens in a moment in time. And justified means though I am guilty, I am proclaimed innocent. Um, This is not a complete definition, but it's a decent enough way to remember it. It's because of what Christ has done for me, it's just as if I'd never sinned. And ultimately it's this, all sin must be paid for. You got two options. Are you going to pay? Or are you going to take the substitutionary payment? Payment and atonement mean the same thing in the Bible. And so in the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. So you can self-atone. God is a holy and just God. Any sin against an almighty, ever-loving God requires an everlasting punishment. And you can do that with an eternal separation from Him. Or you can take the substitutionary atonement and believe or trust that when He died on the cross, somehow that counted for me. The illustration I use in the book is when I was a kid learning how to swim, my dad would put me on the diving board. He would get in the deep end and he would say, all right, buddy, come on and jump. All right. The Greek word is that's what We translate it believe. I kind of hate that we translate it believe because yeah. there's a difference between believing in and believing that. While standing on the diving board, I believe that that's my dad. Looks like him, sounds like him. I recognize him. He's got the Marlboro light hanging out of his lip while swimming in the deep end. Okay, that's my data. But at that point, I'm still holding my life up. I'm still trusting in me on top of that diving board. And I know that if I were to jump in that water and he lets me go, I'm going to drown because I don't know how to swim yet. But the question is, do I believe, do I trust that he is who he says he is and he's going to keep his promise? That I can... Trust him to hold up my life. The moment I step off of that diving board into his arms, that's what the Bible means when it says pastua. So that happened for me when I was a teenager at that camp. Not that I had everything figured out. Not that I lived the perfect life since then. Not that I even knew theologically what was happening. I just believed, one, I knew I was a sinner. Two, I believe when Jesus says it is finished or to tell us die on the cross, somehow that counted for me. And I was putting my trust in that and not me. You do that, nothing can snatch you out of the hand of God. Now, all of your struggles, and we talk about this at the Mountain of Temptation, your heart is changed immediately and justified, but you still got the same brain, man, you got the same mind. You still have the same birth order, the same Enneagram number, if you're into that, whatever it is. And so now from this moment, the moment you surrender to Christ until you're glorified with him, there is this progressive sanctification that happens from there from here to there.
0: Well, I appreciate you teasing that out and going a little bit further. And guys, we can't spend all day on that. We've got a lot of other good stuff to get to, but I think, I think a, a good walk away or you know through point for that is believe. Believe is a tough word. Like when you say you believe in gravity, like people know what you mean, but all of a sudden if you say you believe in Christ, they're like, well, what do you mean by believe? Can you know that? It's like, well, yeah, you know that if you get up on top of your house and jump off that you're going to hit the ground. Like you have trust, you have faith, you have belief in gravity. It's kind of the same thing there uh, to kind of put a bow on the book. Cause I do want to get into some other subjects. Uh, when you're talking in chapter six, uh, amount of transfiguration. I'm going to read this quote to you here. Well, you should write this down, especially if you're a millennial or younger. Fairness is not a biblical value. God does what he wants, with whom he wants, when he wants. Why? Because he's the sovereign king of the universe. That reality should comfort you more than it ruffles you because he is good. I've got some more breaking news for you, Pastor we live in a world where everything revolves around us because I is a millennial, right? And the world's got to revolve around me. And right when I graduated from college, I should have got the corner office job because I'm so smart and so amazing, right? This ruffles us to our core. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how God is, and he's not about you, he's about him. But why should we take comfort in the fact that he's the sovereign king of the universe that's not too terribly concerned about whether or not we're comfortable and happy?
1: Yeah, but he is concerned about your soul, and he has demonstrated his love for you fully and finally at the cross. So which means your circumstances don't tell you who you are anymore. Because what often happens, bro, is the devil tries to define you by your scars. And Jesus says, no, 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 man, you're going to be be defined by mine. The sovereign king of the universe has come on a rescue mission to seek and save you if you would just believe. That is comforting. So if my circumstances are going crazy, I trust in the one who still has the world in his hands and he has already demonstrated his will toward me is goodness and grace at the cross. That's comforting.
0: Absolutely. Well, guys, I just got to tell you, if the tomb is empty, it's one of the best books that I've read so far this year. I'm not playing with you. You know, I don't tell lies on this show, so it is in the show notes so you guys can go and pick that up. But now I want to get into a bunch of other random topics that are still kind of in the the under the umbrella of Christendom, if you will. The first right. thing is manhood in the church and manhood in culture. So I think that churches, in in modern church, they do this thing, it's kind of a trick, where they pretend that they care about the men by doing men's programming. So once a year, they'll do like a man thing where they'll get together and eat chili and, you know, deer meat or something like that. And they bring in some speaker and they kind of do that thing, which those things are fine. You know, they, they do this programming thing. But for the other days of the year, the church is not man friendly. Whenever they're singing the songs, whenever they're listening to the pastor, whenever they're doing things, it's as if the church is communicating to them, hey, this is it for you. We didn't have you in mind when we did this. We just assumed you would show up and just deal with it. The majority of Christian books are consumed by women. The overwhelming majority of Christian music is consumed by women. And so I think that's created an issue. And here we are in this point in culture where we can't even tell you what a man is. We can't even tell you what a woman is. And we can say, depending upon what you ate that morning, you might think you're the other thing. And so talk in general about yourself, because here you are, you got a bunch of damn animals behind you. You kind of, you know, check some of the typical man boxes, but talk to me about manhood in the church and in culture.
1: Yeah, man, you're right. I mean, from the empty tomb until today, women have been holding it down in the church, you know? Um, And I think for a long time, this is going to get me in, would get me in a ton of trouble depending on the circles, but I've told our church for a long time, man, that church is like a shirt. You realize this? Church is like a shirt. Um, I can put on my shirt. I look fine. My wife can put on my shirt. She looks great. All right. My wife can put on a blouse. She looks fine. I put on a blouse. Something's weird. <laughs> yeah, right. The church has been like a blouse for the last hundred years. It is; It only fits women. So here at 1122, we're a movement for all people. But let me tell you, bro, I I don't target men. I disciple men. That's the difference. Chili ain't ever done anything. I'm pro chili, man. I, I kill deer all the time. I Last time I bought red meat, I have no idea when that is. So I do all the things. I'm I'm a redneck. I hunt. I fish. I got more guns than I have fingers. I got one on me right now. I drive a four-wheel drive truck. I like college football. None of that makes me a man. It makes me awesome, but it does not make me a man. <laughs> According to the Bible, well, first of all, I will tell you this. An attack on gender is an attack on the character and nature of God. Make no bones about it, man. We're not just talking about legalities and trying to make people feel comfortable or whatever, bro. This An attack on gender is an attack on the character and nature of God. Male and female, he created them so that we could both image him rightly. And so, um, man, we disciple men. I mean, it's what we do here at this church. And you can't stand up and act like men until you first and foremost bend your knee to the God-man, Jesus Christ. And in creation, you see that God gave every single man a woman to love, a will to obey, and work to enjoy. And then the enemy comes along and twists all three of those things. And so typically the response is one of two extremes, and both of them are bad. One is you get into this like machismo where you beat your chest and... You just try to out drink people or out arm wrestle or whatever, you know, prove yourself that you're a man by what you consume. And dude, men don't take, men give, men serve, right? Or you go really the way of the church and you just feminize everybody. And and part of the reason the church has failed with men for so long is they ask men to be women. Just come in here, sit down, be quiet, be nice, put on a robe, get in groups, talk about your feelings. Well, I'm not doing that either, man. It's partly why we planted this church. Because you do not have to check your testicles at the door to follow after Jesus. In fact, you can't rightly follow after Jesus as a man if you do check them at the door. That you got to grow a pair, stand up and act like a man, and be the man that God has called us to be. But the reason God has given us strength, the reason God has called us to be men, is to be prophet, to be priest, to be servant king, to be provider and protector for those that he has put around us. That's what Christ has called men to do.
0: Well, Joby, I just got to tell you, I'm not one to blow smoke. That may have been one of my favorite answers in the history of this podcast. We've been doing this thing (laughs) since 2017. And just the blouse comment is probably worth the price of admission for those that are still listening to the show. We really, really appreciate that sentiment. But I think it dovetails into the very next thing because you talked about how you go after the men, how you work to disciple them part of it is because i think men are worried about what they consider to be real issues that are happening in the world today you know think of the hard subjects so uh, maybe it's abortion or black lives matter or just race in general in america transgenderism you know the attack on gender the lgbtq revolution fundamentalist islam all these different things and pastors seemingly don't want to touch these things at all and i and i use this phrase specifically they hide behind the gospel and what i mean by that is they just want to teach the the Bible and exegete and all those things that we all need. And yet whenever you leave, you don't know how to apply what you just heard to the next school board meeting or to your child that was just exposed to pornography or to your kid that comes home and says, Hey, Johnny says he's Jane. Now, what do I do with that? I'm eight years old. And so why aren't pastors, aside from the fact that a lot of them are just cowards in general, why won't a lot of pastors touch these hot button issues that we could glorify God if we were to, you know, operate inside of them? Think of the abortion thing. What is more, you know, tangible to the word of God than the Imago Day written on the hands or written on, you know, the souls of all these people? Help me.
1: Yeah. One of the things I would say is that the further away you are from anything, the simpler the solution seems. And, a bunch of us that sit in my seat took a beating over the last few years, and it's—I've uh, been in ministry for almost 30 years, and the last two were the toughest ever. Because what we found, man, first of all, none of us had led through anything like this. Hmm. There's the 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 racial unrest, the pandemic, the political unrest, the LGBTQ plus movement that seems to be has so much momentum. Okay. So you got all these things going on. Then we're isolated, sitting in our homes by ourselves all the time. And, um, if every day you turn on the news and the next city is burning down, then all of a sudden these people that were, that were fans and followers of what you were doing as a leader, all of a sudden are firing off just some of the meanest things you've ever heard. Right. Mm -hmm. And what I found, bro, is no matter what you do as a leader, it's all three little bears, bro. For some people, it's not enough. For some people, it's too much. And for some people, it's just right. So Kyle, back-to-back emails. I got one email that says, Pastor Joby, I'm leaving the church because all you do is talk about race. The Literally, the next email says, I'm leaving the church because we haven't even mentioned race. And I'm like, <laughs> well, there you go, man. So you could ask those two people. And even though I'm trying to rightly divide the word of God and can like, contend for the gospel and hold on to you know to figure out what's going on in the culture a lot of it's just in the ear of of the hearer and so you got to teach the full counsel man um i would highly encourage you to walk through books like 1 Corinthians because it was a train wreck and Paul what Paul is doing is Paul is putting feet to the gospel and saying this is what the gospel implications are in your life in regards to what's happening in your culture right now And so the thing is, bro, everybody thinks they want to be a prophet until they're prophetic. And then anytime you are a prophet, everybody wants to kill you from both sides. But it's just what we signed up for, man. I mean, I don't know. I I tell people I'm not the mailman. I don't write it. I just deliver it. Hey,
0: I mean, you mentioned Elijah in the book and uh, we, we named our, our second son, Elijah, and it's like that guy wasn't incredibly popular during his day. And yet here we are talking about him because of the important things that he did as a prophet. Um, but I think all this kind of goes into as well, what we've kind of seen, and this is kind of the easiest arrow to sling at someone in your uh, line of work, is the fall of prominent pastors, because there is like a Mount Rushmore of prominent pastors that have fallen. So even recently, Brian Houston and Carl Lentz of Hillsong, you've got Robbie Zacharias, all the things that came out after his death uh you know from RZIM yeah Bill Heibels right yeah, a couple of years back with the Willow Creek Community Church all those guys I just mentioned, it was all sex scandals in some way, shape, or form. They all had to do with sex and, you know, acting out in that way. And and to be honest, you don't have to say it or co-sign it. I'll say it. There's a whole slew of pastors that very likely should fall. I'm thinking about guys like Joel Osteen, Stephen Furtick, and maybe some others, some guys that probably don't deserve, you know, the stage that they're standing on. It's this cult of personality. It's people that are insulated from rebuke and accountability. It's guys that aren't, they're not you know, leading pastors, they're CEOs. Like they don't have a deacon board. They have a board of directors that they happen to be the chairman of. It's that type of a thing. And it's it's a reminder to us to not put our faith in man, you know, regardless of the man. But talk about that because I'm sure every time one of these prominent best selling pastors, you know, falls off, it's gotta hurt your business, right?
1: Yeah, it hurts my heart more than anything, man. I mean when this stuff happened ten years ago, I was talking to one of my buddies about it. And man, when this stuff happened ten years ago, it might as well have been Elvis and Madonna and Chewbacca going down. We didn't know these people; they were just bigger in life. Man, a lot of these dudes now, like I, I mean, I, they're buddies of mine. I know them. I, I've, I've done ministry with them, you know. And so it, it does, man. It hurts my heart. It, um, I'll tell you this: there's a, a really popular verse people like to quote. They just quote it way out of context, but you know, Peter says that the devil is like a a a lying right a roaring lion seeking someone to devour man that is in the context he's talking to elders pastors in that context and you better know we got an enemy and he wants to steal he actually in john 10 it says he only wants to steal kill and destroy and so man i i hate it for these churches i hate it for these these men I'd like—I'd like to believe that that—that that was not their intention when they started out, you know. Um, but you—if you don't think you are at war, then it's already over, man. I was—I was reading the Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and when, he's got this line in there when he's talking about how everybody was getting scooped up by the by the Russian police, and nobody was doing anything about it. He said this. He says, he says, when it, when it comes to a fight. The individual who has pre-decided that violence is a necessary part of the altercation always wins. Yeah. And when I read that, I thought, man, that is the spiritual warfare that we're in, bro. There's a whole bunch of Christians that don't realize that violence is going to happen against you from the enemy. And if you're not prepared to be violent, dude, you're already taken out. And so you you mentioned um, the way some of these guys are set up. That was a big part of the problem. Um, when we planted this church in 2012, I put together an elder board of local elders. And before the church grabbed onto that word in Greek, it just meant old dude. That's just what the word meant. <laughs> yeah. And so I've got, I got seven or eight elders now, and they're all, I think our youngest might be 57, our oldest is 84, but they're all lead stuff. None of them work for me. They're also local dudes. Mm. Um, For sure, I've got groups of friends that pastor large churches that I spend time with and stuff, but they don't see how I treat my wife or how I treat my kids or, you know, that kind of thing. So local elders matter. that can tell you no. That matters. Every time one of these dudes falls, my staff, you know, they get a little panicky. And they say, what happened? And I I can tell you exactly what happened with everybody you mentioned. This dude started down a road, and the Spirit of God said, whoa, 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 whoa. And this dude went. Forget you. I got this. Hmm. And we ain't got this, man. So I think that matters. Secondly, I think a lot of these guys didn't have any friends, man. We're like real friends. If all you're trying to do is run around with superstars, man, they, I don't know that there's your your real friends. Do you have like real buddies that can call you by your first name and joke on you and maybe you need to be the butt of the joke pretty consistently? Because isolation, man, is an is a, is a incredible tool of the enemy. And then third – you know we've mentioned hunting before i think it's a really good idea do you have some kind of productive healthy hobby or outlet that can consume you because especially like the big mega guys and the those of us that pastor real big churches or church planners man we're we're all in search for this little zing anyway hmm. And so for me, like, look, man, I'm it's turkey season right now, and I'm taking my son turkey hunting this weekend, and I can't wait. I know it sounds dumb to people that aren't into it, but I don't care. I cannot wait to get on that gobble and hope I can get him in front of us, and then JP just busts his head off, you know? Can't wait for it. Well, then what happens when people don't have, like, legit hobbies is they end up looking for that zing in somewhere that ain't good. Like, they go into some kind of weird gambling thing, or they start talking to somebody that's not their wife, or they begin to go down that kind of road. And, um, but yeah, man, my heart breaks for really those, those churches, man, those sheep without a shepherd that, um, they get all tangled up. I mean, Paul says this, Paul says in first Corinthians 11, one, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. I mean, that's a pretty bold statement that's in yeah. our Bible. I need to be able to rightly say that to my church. Now, you're not putting your faith in me. You're not putting your trust in me, but God has called me to shepherd you. I need to be able to rightly say, if you follow in the path that I'm on, it's going to lead you to Jesus. And there is that kind of trust relationship that people at churches ought to be able to have with their leadership. And when that trust is betrayed, it hurts really, really bad, man. Really bad. So, you know... I pray for those churches. I pray for those people. I mean, I really do. I, I'm not I'm not a big fan of the guy that falls and in a minute he's right back in the pulpit somewhere, you know. I don't think anybody has a right to be a pastor. I think disqualifications mean you're disqualified. Um but yeah, dude, it's an epidemic, man. It really is.
0: And of course, I mean, you're a high value target when you're a pastor, because obviously For if sure. you can fall, everyone can point at you and be like, why should I listen to your God's version of morality? Because look at what your main guy did. But I'm, I think part of the reason that that people struggle, and this is even people that are in those churches, is they want to put their trust in somebody, but they're not actually trusting a person. They're trusting a personality. They're trusting a face on a screen. And it's because a lot of churches, and maybe and you can kind of speak to this, and it's going to seem like I'm giving you crap, but I know you can handle it. It's this up, you know, mentality that a lot of these guys have that, you know, it's this growth model and it creates some issues. And so it's like, okay, uh our church got too big. So let's go to multi-site. You know, I went to the church for over 10 years that started the multi-site revolution and invented church online. Okay. Like I'm fully aware of of all those different things and the value you can get. The problem is, is how disconnected you technically are because your pastor doesn't know your name and they, they try to get a campus pastor or something like that, but it's like, they also don't know your name. And then they're like, okay, well, we're going to have these multiple layers. And then it turns into a flow chart. It turns into an org chart and you're not actually following the individual person. So it's like, Hey, follow me as I follow Christ. They're like which guy, which guy with the fancy haircut and tight pants do I follow this week because I'm losing track? So I know that's a little bit of an underhanded blow on a lot of these guys because just because your church is big does not mean your church is unhealthy. While there are a lot of unhealthy churches that are big, the same could be said about small churches and medium churches. But I do find that there are some issues with that multi-site online church model. So tell me if I'm wrong and tell me why.
1: Yeah, man, the Great Commission is quite the great call, right? So my question is, so, man, our church is huge. It's We're 10 years old. It'll be, I don't know. Well, it's Easter. It'll be 20,000 people here this weekend. We have eight sites. We'll be at 11 by the end of next year. Three of those are in prisons. Mm. Um, we we don't call our online experience a campus for ecclesiological reasons, but I don't want geography to determine who we can disciple. You know, we got people from all over, you know, so... A lot of us are trying to figure this out as we go. But, dude, the question I always ask is, who would you like for me to kick out? Like, just during this series that we're in right now, we've had over 350 people at least signified a first-time decision to follow after Jesus. Which one of those do you want me to say, well, we're too big, you can't come along anymore? Like, we've never tried to be a big church, man. We just trying to reach one more because he's the kind that leaves the 99 to go reach the one. And so we do reproduce, we try to reproduce a whole bunch of pastors. I will tell you this. If if you've got if you go to a church with a few hundred people, the pastor don't know you, man. How can you know? You know, I mean everybody, the biggest campfire you can hold, what, 50 people maybe? Hmm. And even that, I have a hard time hanging out with the people that share my last name and home address. <laughs> much less spend time with all the people coming out of church. Part of the way we do church. We're not trying to say we're the way we just trying to be faithful to how God has put us together as a Bible believing gospel centered church. We do the multi-site thing so that we don't build one big giant megaplex with like 20,000 people sitting in it so that we can partner with our people all over the city of Jacksonville in the neighborhoods that they live in so that they can invite their people to come meet Jesus right where they live. And our campus pastors are way more accessible than I am because They're not doing book podcasts and they don't have to work 25 hours a week writing a sermon. Their primary job is to care for and disciple people. And then in actuality, according to the book of Ephesians chapter four, my job isn't even to do ministry. My job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So what we're trying to do, because one of the questions I ask us all the time, Kyle, when people want to meet with me, Mm -hmm. I I ask them, oh, do you want me or do you want help? Because I can get you help right now. Yeah. Or, but if you want to talk to me, it's actually just because I'm the guy on stage with the face mic. You don't need me, man. I'm the worst counselor on the planet. You don't want me to do marriage counseling. I'm gonna. It's gonna take me three seconds to tell you, hey, man, you put Jesus in the middle. You love her like He loves you, and Mama, you respect Him. All right, I'm done. That's all I got. Mm -hmm. You need an actual. So what we try to do is equip the saints for the work of the ministry, so that people can be discipled. I mean, the crazy thing is, is that. Is that in our model, we are way more decentralized from a ministry standpoint than the single church with 300 people in it. And everybody goes to the pastor for everything. Like I would ask that pastor. See, I've already decided you don't have to come to me for everything. I believe in the priesthood of the believer and the indwelling spirit of God in every believer here. And so I'm not the only disciple maker here. We have an army of disciple makers all over the city. So let me ask you pastor why does every, why do you think everybody has to come to you to get what they need like who's the one with the ego and i'm not saying i don't have an ego i'm just saying <laughs> i think everybody does so and again man i'm not knocking the way anybody else wants to try to do church You see, it's kind of crazy. In the Old Testament, man, worship is really prescriptive. They're like, here's the instruments you use. Here's the songs you sing. Mm -hmm. Here's the words you say. Well, it was to one people group in one place at one time. It was the Israelites in Israel at the temple. This is what you do. Then the New Testament is a movement for all people all around the world. And so you don't really get that kind of prescription of what church ought to look like. I mean the house church in North Korea that's huddled together in a basement right now afraid that they're gonna get murdered and this thing that we're doing here in Jacksonville, same Jesus, same movement, very different expression so I'm just really careful to try to to try to require anybody to like fit one particular mold of how God decided to do church but that's just us.
0: Well, Joby, I appreciate you going into to more detail with that. And along with that, we'll kind of stay in the world of the church world. Um, you've probably heard the expression worship wars at different points because oh. everyone kind of has their their style of worship. And a lot of people will pick their church or leave their church based on the singing and the songs. And you know, I've heard people have this conversation, hey, are you a Hillsong person or are you a Bethel person or are you more of an elevation kind of a guy? And we, we get into this whole idea. And I have a lot of issues personally with contemporary Christian music. Guys that listen to my show for a long time know that a lot of the, the lyrical content is homoerotic. I think a lot of it is, is inappropriate. You have these guys not singing it because they're like, why would I sing about a guy that I want to embrace and, and, and kiss and hug? It's like, that's the God of the universe who sent his son to die. Like, why am I talking about him? Like, he's my bro. Like he's my homie. Like what up homie? Like, no, no, no. Like it, it becomes a major, major issue for people. And then you have people that are like, wait a minute, there's instruments. We didn't have those instruments back in the day. That couldn't possibly be the right kind of worship. So talk to me a little bit about kind of the worship wars, because I, frankly don't know and don't really care what type of music y'all sing at your church, but it is, it is important to glorify God and not just our feelings when we sing and worship God, right?
1: That's interesting. I just, like right before this, I was in a meeting with our worship team and a bunch of the new folks on it and stuff. And I love the guys and girls that lead worship here and their hearts towards the Lord. First and foremost, I told them is this, you can't just say things that are wrong. You just can't. So, um, and what's really, boy, this is some thin ice here. Let's go. Come on out. The water's fine. The, well, I, I mean, I'm not trying to throw stones, but the, the most doctrinally sound places typically have like the worst music. I mean, all the places. Look, dude, I'm <laughs> an true, X29. Though. It's true. I'm an X29 guy. We're reformed Bible people. We're into it. You know, people got, we got like Spurgeon tattoos and stuff. We're into it. All right. And yet, there's a bunch of places that I would never go to their church, and their music is freaking awesome. I'm just telling you, it is. And I'm a theologian, dude. We so part of what I'll say is this: like, if I were to go home, it's not just about the emotion whatsoever. You got to say stuff that is true. You cannot rightly worship God without right thoughts about God. That matters, man. So if I I, I use this illustration for our church, if I were to go home and if I wrote my wife a love song, and it started out with "I love your beautiful green eyes," she's not gonna like it because she ain't got green eyes. She <laughs> thinks a- I'm singing about somebody else. So, <laughs> right. if you have things in there that are poetically cute and theologically wrong, you can't do that. Okay. That being said, there is no preferred style. What do you think God likes? Chinese or Spanish better? Bro, it's it's the it's out of the heart of the worshiper, but we have to worship him in spirit and in truth. And in John chapter 4, what Jesus says God is looking for is the worshiper. He says, I am looking, there will come a day when those who worship me will worship me in spirit and in truth. So I think it's a silly thing to put subjective sort of lenses over different styles of music and claim one is better than the other. But all of them should be subjected to to, uh, theological scrutiny to make sure that everything we're singing lines up with the word of God
0: theological scrutiny is the exact way to say it. Cause when guys ask me, they're like, Oh yeah, problems with modern you know, worship music. So what should I listen to? I'm like, I'm not going to tell you what type of music you should like, because there's a, a new uh, worship group out of Tennessee called the altar music. They've got a banjo and a steel guitar and, and a fiddle. And I mean, it just, it speaks to the Oki in me. Right. But that yeah. may not be your thing. So oh, hip hop might be your that. thing. Who Metal, is that? I want to know who that is. The altar music. So they just had uh, the conference, the altar conference out in Las Vegas. Um, the, the lead pastor at this place, yeah, he, to be the lead singer of one of my favorite christian metal bands of all time called for today super aggressive super theologically sound but they literally just released uh an album and so i'm glad i'm giving them a shout out here uh, because it's just it's great great talented people but theologically sound and i get it that's what you should be looking for don't really care about how many guitars and how many strings are on it so that's kind of the deal here but i know we're running a little bit short on time here so i want to go ahead and skip to the end i like to do a segment towards the end of the show and it'll be great with you it's a lightning round segment called what would you say to someone that said? And so I'm going to say that, and then I'm going to fill in the blank, and you've got 30 seconds, no matter what I say, to respond to that. So what would you say to someone that said? You up for it? Yes, sir. All right, let's get into the first one here. What would you say to someone that said, if you lead a Christian congregation, you must have theological and biblical training?
1: Um, None of the disciples did. Peter was not theologically trained, except by Jesus. So I think you're laying on things things that the Bible does not lay on them. However, I got more degrees than Fahrenheit, and I am pro preparing yourself for ministry. But that is a man-made tool that you're, you should never be, you should never have requirements that are greater than the scriptures.
0: Okay, next one here. What would you say to someone that said, country accents are hard to listen to? (laughs)
1: <laughs> then you're going to hate heaven because this is how we're going to talk in heaven.
0: <laughs> hey, I love it. I'm from Oklahoma. You got a country accent too. Everybody gets it. All right, next one here. What would you say to someone that said, I don't like Joby Martin's preaching style?
1: Uh, no problem, man. One of the great things about living in this country and advances like YouTube and all that, you can, man, no problem, man. God bless your ministry.
0: Yeah. Go well, listen,
1: you know. I And by the way, I don't like it either. I don't like me at all. I can't wait for the day that I am fully crucified and my flesh is all burnt away and the only thing shining through is my glorified self. So I'm with you in that camp.
0: All right, next one here. What would you say to someone that said, Church Online is not the gathering of the saints?
1: Yeah, you may be right, but the Great Commission is still... The Great Commission. And um, I think you probably would have said the same thing to Paul when he used Pax Romana and the World Wide Web, which was a road system in Rome, to plant little churches with unqualified people. And so I would not let geography limit discipleship, but I also would not stamp everything that's happening online as quote unquote ecclesia or church.
0: I think it's really important there just to bust up my own little segment. There's a there's a uh, dissonance, and you can hold two disparate thoughts at one time. It's not taking both sides. It's not fence straddling. Sometimes there isn't a black or white answer. So I appreciate that. Next there's one, also, there's oh, also
1: there's also not a monolithic audience, mm-hmm. man. There's not like one. So here's what we do with our mm-hmm. online experience. We have eleven twenty two online, bro. There's like three hundred thousand people that watch every sermon. All right, what are we going to do with these people? Some of them are just supplementing their own church. Praise God. Like I've yeah. got some cousins that are this little country church in South Carolina, and they say they can serve their church better because they kind of supplement it with our music and teaching, you know, Mm. then there are people that are checking out the whole Jesus thing. Then there are some people that just missed this weekend, but they're able to stay more connected at their church, even though they were on vacation. And then there is this category for whatever reason, right or wrong, nobody's discipling this person. Well, what are we going to do with that person? Tell them good luck. I'm just telling them we'll disciple you and help you get plugged in locally. If that's an option. Okay. So I, I think there's, there's a multi-layered approach that's not one size fits all.
0: Yeah, there are healthy approaches and then there are just convenient ones. So make sure you're looking out and seeking for the healthy ones. All
1: right, for next sure. one
0: here. What would you say to someone that said, a loving God wouldn't allow people to suffer?
1: Um, I would say he has demonstrated his love at the cross. So you're looking at the wrong... If you're looking to your circumstances to determine whether God is love or not, then you are personifying what you think love is, and you want it to be about you and your comfort.
0: All right. Just a few more left. You're doing great, Pastor. What would you say to someone that said Catholicism is an apostate religion?
1: I would say, what happened to you? Like, what's going on in there? Uh, Because you could probably say that about any denomination. And what is true, and I would would say— there are some things in Catholic doctrine um, that needed to and need to be reformed, but there are Catholics that trust in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone for their salvation. So that I would I would want to be nuanced there. However, to the Catholic, I would want to talk about works based righteousness versus the imputed righteousness of Christ, and that matters a lot.
0: Absolutely. That's where most of the reformation needed to happen. Okay. I got a couple left for you. What would you say to someone that said the church in America is way too relaxed and quiet on the subject of abortion? Amen. That's all that needs to be said on that pastor. Last question of the day. Here we go. What would you say to someone that said, Jesus couldn't possibly save me? I'm way too jacked up.
1: I'd say, who the freak do you think you are? I mean, if you think your sin can somehow outpace the grace of Jesus poured out of the cross, first of all, you need to get over yourself. You cannot outsin the love of God that He lavishes His love upon anyone that would receive it. And why don't you get over yourself and receive it right now?
0: I certainly appreciate that. But, Pastor, we have gone everywhere in this conversation. I really appreciate you getting into all the subjects that you did. But that is all for me. Is there anything else
1: you want to get off your chest? Nah, man, thanks. Thanks for what you do. I hope it's a blessing to anybody and everybody listening.
0: All right, Joby Martin, thank you for coming on on Daunted Life, a man's podcast. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Pastor Joby Martin. Martin. Before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got a couple of links for you today. I've got a link to the Church of 1122's website. So if you want to get to his you know, sermon content and all the other stuff about the church, you can go there. And I've also got a link to Joby's Instagram. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to this show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life that's info at undaunted.life follow us on instagram and like us on facebook and check out our website for everything else including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way just go to www.undaunted.life and as always we want to thank the band august burns red for allowing us to use their music for our content the music on this podcast is their song cutting the ties which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album leveler the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember Keep pushing back darkness. Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah.